impacted and inspired by this teaching. For more information and service times, check out our website at noosa.church. Enjoy. Why don't you turn your Bibles this morning to Genesis chapter 45. We're going to talk about uh, a moment in Joseph's life where he, uh, his relationship with his brothers comes back together again. He hasn't seen them for 20 years and he's about to come back together. So if you turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 45, and it's one of the great pieces of history in the Bible, I believe. And I think there's a, there's a lot for us to grasp from it this morning. So I'll just give you a little recap of, of where we're at in his journey. He's one of, he, he, he's one of 12 brothers and, uh, and 10 of those brothers didn't really like Joseph too much when he was a young guy, when he was a teenager, um, p- predominantly because their dad, Jacob, Israel, um, loved Joseph more than all the others. Uh, but then it, it got amplified when uh, Joseph had those dreams and shared with his brothers that um, his parents and his brothers were going to at some point bow down to him. And you can imagine if your little brother says that, it's not necessarily going to endear you to him. But eventually, you know, he ticks him off that much. Eventually, his ten brothers sell him into slavery and tell their father that uh, he's been taken by wild animals. And uh, he ends up in Potiphar's house for a while. Then he's falsely accused there and he lands in prison. And uh, after interpreting, you know, one of the Pharaoh's dreams, uh, he ends up eventually becoming the two I see in all of uh, Egypt. And based on the dream which, which, which prophesies seven years of abundance and seven years of drought, Joseph oversees, uh, oversees the nation in that area. And, uh, and as he manages those seven years of drought, about two years in, his brothers come on behalf of their family to seek provision to take back to Jacob and the rest of their, their people. And they don't actually recognise him. Joseph's brothers don't recognise him. It's been 20 years since they've seen him. And the reality is Joseph probably probably looks exactly like an Egyptian now, not like a Hebrew person at all. So they didn't recognise him at all. And uh, so here we are. Um, There's a little bit of toing and froing that's been going back and forth, trying to get his young brother there with him. But but here we are, right at the, at the, the pinnacle point of our message today. And we'll pick it up in Genesis 43. Verse 3. It says this, Then Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. He, he reveals himself. After this toing and froing, he reveals himself. I am Joseph. And then he asks the question right on, right on his heart. He says, Does my father still live? He wants to know if his father, who he hasn't seen in 20 years, still live. But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed in his presence. And Joseph said to his brothers, please come near me. So they came near and then he said to them, I am Joseph, your brother, whom you sold to Egypt. So Joseph's brothers are faced with this reality here in this moment that, you know, they are now standing in front of the second most powerful man in all of Egypt and probably beyond, in, in, in probably all of the world in that region because of the drought became even more powerful the second most powerful man in all of Egypt that they had sold into slavery, their younger brother. So can you imagine how dumbfounded they were because, you know, 
this is the great opportunity for revenge. And he'd been toing and froing with them, messing with them a little bit to try to get his young brother there and, and different things. So here they are. Um, and Joseph said, it's good, it's me. I'm, but just letting you know, I remember. <laughs> it actually reminds me, you know, of, of, of Peter when he's preaching in the day of Pentecost and those people listening are cut to the heart. It says in Acts 2, 36, it says, Therefore, let all the house of Israel know assuredly that God has, has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, by the way, both Lord and Christ. And when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to the people, said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Men and brethren, what shall we do? Can you imagine Joseph's brothers when, when they realised it was, it was their brother, they would have been repentant at that point. They would have said, look, Joseph, what can we do? We need everything that you, that you, that you uh, have to give us, but we don't deserve it because we sold you into slavery and reported you as dead to our father. I don't know about you, but when, when I've had epiphanies of the cross and how Jesus ended up there, I, I've had moments of clarity of my participation in putting Jesus on the cross. Even though we are a couple of thousand years after the crucifixion. Would you agree with me that we all know that we, we, were, we participated in putting Jesus on the cross? And when we realise that, it cuts deep. It cuts to the heart that we, we positioned Jesus in that place. We, 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 we made him go to that place. Here's the beauty though. And this is absolutely true. That's what Peter preached. You crucified him. But there's a greater truth. We may have sent him there, but there's a greater truth that God sent him there because of his great love. We sent him there because of our sin. God sent him there because of his great love. I love that song we sing. My sin was great, great enough to convict me, but his love was greater, great enough to forgive me and liberate me from my sin. What a beautiful picture. And, you know, we, and we see the mirror image of this as Joseph is restoring relationship with his brothers. And we see in verse 5, he says this, But now, brothers, do not therefore be grieved or angry with yourselves because you sold me here, because God sent me before you to preserve life. So even though... You know, his brothers made the decision to sell him into slavery. God was actually preparing something in advance for the liberty of those people who sent him there. It's a mind explosion, isn't it, to, to go, well, you know, what came first, the chicken or the egg? Did the, did the brothers, did, did God anticipate the brothers were going to send him there? Was it, you know, there's a whole big thing for us to contemplate. And, you know, this, this is the beauty of the mystery of Christ. The mystery of the cross. It's beyond our understanding. The peace that comes from, from the cross is beyond our understanding. He says, do not be grieved or angry. Do they deserve to be grieved? Do they deserve to be angry? Absolutely. But Joseph released them from their guilt because his love for them was greater than the pain they caused him. And his love didn't come out of their repentance, did it? They hadn't repented up until this point. They, haven't, they hadn't apologised and done anything. Why did Joseph get to the point where he had a love for his brothers greater than what they'd done to him? 
His love came out of his commitment to serve the will of God. And the more we serve the will of God, the more we gain a capacity to forgive those who have hurt us in previous time. A lot of times we want someone to to apologise or repent before we will forgive them. But God's saying there's a greater love than a transactional love. God's love is greater than a transaction. God didn't wait for us to repent before he sent his son to the cross. And like Joseph, Joseph didn't wait for his brothers to repent before he said, I love you. His love and and forgiveness wasn't based on their repentance, but his pursuit of God. I want to encourage you this morning that God has, um, as you pursue God, he will equip you to love like you're not capable of loving without that pursuit. And this is the great challenge to the church. We live in a transactional world. Everything we do is transactional. And, you know, and it's becoming, transactions are becoming even simpler, aren't they? It, transactions are very easy. You can just bump your phone on a, on, a, on a little piece of equipment and all of a sudden money somehow comes out of your account into someone else's account. But God's not a transactional God. He's a covenant-making God. And he made covenant with you in the hope that you would step into that covenant. But whether you do or don't, it's there waiting. And God says to us, I believe through this story, that if we pursue Christ and if we, and if we pursue uh, his will and his, his story, then he'll create a love in us that doesn't require others to love us first, doesn't require others who have hurt us to forgive us first. I ask myself this question, you know, in my, in, my, in my life's journey, is there an increasing love for others or a decreasing love for others? And you notice in life, and, and the way that you know this, is your world or your circle becoming smaller or is it becoming bigger? And it's a great encouragement, I believe, because a lot of times when we, when we harbour unforgiveness, it cripples us. It cripples, you know, it cripples us more so than anybody else because the unforgiveness festers in our lives. But as we pursue God, something else grows within us. His love, his faithfulness, his redemptive clarity. Romans 8 says this, first one, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. Who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. I love, you know, Joseph, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And I believe we see through Joseph that it goes both ways. As in, you know, there is no condemnation to you. And as we mature in our faith, there is no condemnation from you. And that's the big one. As we step into the fact that there's no condemnation to us, as we, you know, as we walk and are led by the Spirit, he grows a love in us that enables us to not have condemnation from us toward those around us. For the law, verse 2, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh, God did by sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh on account of sin. 
He condemned sin in the flesh. That the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. We need to walk according to the spirit. It's very easy for me to say that, but it's, a, it's, it's not a simple thing to grasp, is it? What does it mean to walk according to the spirit? And I, and I want to encourage you. We, you know, we started with that scripture of Jesus speaking to, to the woman at the well. And, and you know, he talks about worshipping in spirit and in truth. Now, as believers, our walk and our worship are one and the same. Our prayer life, our walk and our worship are one and the same. So as we learn, as we, as we learn to grasp these things, to, be, to, walk in, to, to walk and to live and to worship and to pray in spirit and in truth, you know, in spirit means to be in harmony with God who is spirit. Remember, Jesus says, the Lord is spirit, and those who worship him will worship him in spirit and in truth. So for us to worship him in spirit is not a moment in time in a worship service or in a prayer meeting or in your own prayer life. It's your life becoming in harmony with the Lord. And as our life becomes in harmony with the Lord, we're living in spirit, not just in the moment. We don't just have a spiritual moment. We live in the spirit by by attempting to bring our our life in harmony with him. And how do we do that? Well, we do that through truth. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So what's the truth? You know, the truth is the liberty of Christ. And a lot of us, we've received Christ as our saviour, but we're still walking with the burden of sin. We take communion in this place every Sunday because we want to remind ourselves that we are free. Every week you give yourself permission to not be free by making a mistake again, by hurting yourself or hurting someone or doing something selfish. So then you carry this guilt and he says, do you know what, every time you gather, why don't you do this? Why don't you take a moment, remember the cross, remember the sacrifice, remember my broken body, remember my shed blood, so that as you do remember them, you can examine your life and realise those areas that you've taken the burden of sin onto you and release them to the foot of the cross and walk in my liberty once again. What a blessed group of people that we are that he's given us the ability to keep coming back to that space of his redemption. Verse 6, For these two years the famine has been in the land, There are still five years in which there will be neither ploughing nor harvesting. And God sent me before you to preserve a posterity for you in the earth and to save your lives by great deliverance. I want to suggest to you that the word posterity is key in this one. Posterity is one of those words that we don't tend to use that much in life, but it's, I believe it's significant because it's about preserving uh, something beyond us. It's preserved, he, you know, he was create, it was, God was preserving the generation that was going to come out of Israel, not just those lives. It's a humbling revelation, isn't it, that God's plan through you is greater than you and your survival. God's plan through you is greater than you and your survival. 
See, the lengths that God went to to preserve the sons of Israel was extraordinary, wasn't it? This 20-year journey that Joseph, you know, that, that God allowed his brothers, you know, to, to do what they did and, and sell him off and him to go through Potiphar's house and, and, uh, and then get thrown in prison because of false accusation and then interpret some dreams, you know, and then go into, into Pharaoh's house and then, you know, in seven years of drought, a couple of years of, uh, I mean, seven years of abundance and then a couple of years of drought before he reconnects with his brothers. And you think, what an amazing... Just so that in the drought, God could sustain that people. Considering the whole time, what was the contribution of each of the sons other than their names to the work of Israel? You think about all of the sons, you know, when you... You, you know, they, they, all, they all... They had tribes that were represented by their names, but they... In, in and of themselves, didn't necessarily do that much significant that we can see. But God had a greater plan than specifically sustaining the lives of, you know, of, of all of those Reuben and Issachar and Simon, Simeon and all those guys and Levi. God was preserving a people that would become a pathway to Jesus, not just rescuing a few people from a drought. You see, a lot of us, we get so obsessed with the drought that we forget that we're the link in a chain of a great generational work that the Lord's doing that's going to bless people three generations down the track. What drought are you giving too much attention to right now, church? God's inviting you into his story. He's inviting us out of our story and into his story. Our story is dominated by sin and getting, out, getting away with sin scot-free. His story is saying, I've got, to get, I've got to let you off your sin so I can invite you into my story so that we can bless the generations who are ahead. Verse 8. So now it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he has made me a father to Pharaoh and lord of all his house and a ruler throughout the land of Egypt. Isn't it amazing? You know, we always, we always like to consider who we are. I always think, who am I in this story? You know what I mean? And we're, everyone wants to be Joseph, but I think we've got to accept the reality that we are the brothers, okay? Anyone want to be Joseph? I totally want to be Joseph. Unfortunately, I'm like one of the brothers... And God's love, here's the beauty, though, of being one of the brothers and being in relationship with God. God's love is so great that he even uses our self-centred mistakes as part of his greater plan for redemption. And they did a terrible thing, didn't they, these brothers? But God used it to just show, to show a, a beautiful picture of what Jesus was about to do couple of thousand years later. Isn't that, isn't that magnificent? It, and, and, I, and isn't it interesting, even for us in the church, we're more inspired by someone who comes up and stands behind the pulpit and tells us of their um, story out of ridiculous sin and ridiculous um, drama into a, into a life of faith than we are when a fourth generation Christian gets up and says, I'm a legacy. Isn't it amazing? 
I don't know about you, but I would, I, I'm, so, you know, I'm so grateful that I'm part of a legacy and, 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 and didn't have to walk out of that. But the inspiration, we're driven by redemption. Because even though we might be a, genera- a you know, third, fourth, fifth generation Christian, the reality is all of us are as broken as each other, no matter what we've come out of. And the Lord's liberty is the same for all. God's great grace encompasses our story to the point where our sin, which crucified Jesus, gets absorbed by the greater story of God's love liberating us by sending his son. God's saying, you might have sent Jesus to the cross, small s, but I sent big s Jesus to the cross because I have a greater story that I want to live out through you. Verse 9, hurry up, go to my father and say to him, thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. You shall dwell in the land of Goshen and you shall be near me. You and your children, your children's children, your flocks and your herds and and all that you have. There I will provide for you, lest you and your household and all that you have come to poverty, for there are still five years of famine. There's a great verse in Psalm 37, verse 3, that says, dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. See, this is a key church because, you know, he wants us to be spiritual. But we live in Noosa, which is, it's very difficult to be spiritual in Noosa because the natural beauty is overwhelming in the natural so we need to go out of our land, out, go out of our way to be residents and to live in Noosa. But we must establish our lives in his kingdom. Dwell in the land, but feed on his faithfulness. Dwell in the land, church, and feed on his faithfulness. What a beautiful word, feed, because feed leads to sustenance. Dwell is about where. Dwell is about is a location. Feeding is about sustenance. We live in Noosa, but our sustenance comes from the kingdom of heaven. How? By getting in harmony with God and accepting his realities. And the greatest reality that you've first got to accept is that you are free. Free from the burden of your yesterday. Verse 15. Moreover, last verse. Moreover, he kissed all of his brothers and wept over them. And after, uh, after that, his brothers then spoke with him. Joseph allowed God's greatest story to restore his love for his brothers. Here's the invitation today, church. If we allow God's invitation to his journey to become the centre of our journey, our love for one another will, be, will become what Jesus said. It will become what we're known for. Our love for one another within the church is the greatest area of attack from the enemy because the world will respect us by our love for one another. 
We think it's all these other things. We think it's the events and the music and the lights and the, and the community programs and the, you're feeding the poor and all these things. They're all great things to do. But the world will truly know us by our love for one another. And your love for one another doesn't come from a, from a transaction of, of apology or repentance and forgiveness. It comes from our individual and shared pursuit of God. And as we do that, as we pursue God, as we enter into his will, then we will gain a love for one another that we cannot even explain. I invite you into that journey this morning, church. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you. We thank you for your grace, for your truth, for your hope. We thank you that in the midst of our failings, You continue to love us. You continue to leave the door open. You continue to leave the opportunity for us to to walk in your redemption. And as we step into this time of communion, Lord, Lord, we ask that you would stir our hearts to surrender once again to your grace and to your truth. Lord, we want to worship you in spirit and in truth. We want to live in awe of your beauty and of your love and of your truth. We ask, Father, that each and every person in this house today would have fresh eyes that aren't dominated by the natural but are piercing into the spiritual in the mighty name of your son, Jesus. Amen. We hope you've enjoyed this teaching, that you've been encouraged and challenged. To stay up to date with our latest messages, you can subscribe to our podcast. For more information, resource or service times, please check out our website at noosa.church.